lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and film historian and programmer Elizabeth Purcell. Although not always great representation, depictions of same-sex relationships on film go back to 1894, where audiences saw a man dancing closely with a man in the Dixon Experimental Sound Film. From there, up to the early 30s, LGBTQ plus characters were seen in American films, from directors like Cecil B. DeMille and Charlie Chaplin. And then the Hayes Code showed up in 1936 to 1968, banning movies that displayed quote-unquote sexual persuasion. After 1968, however, all bets were off and queer cinema blew up, first underground and then occasionally trickling into mainstream American pop culture. Elizabeth, can you talk a bit about the 70s queer cinema emergence? I think people in general have um, a misunderstanding about, you know, the beginnings of, you know, American queer cinema in the 1970s. They generally think that, you know, maybe three or four films were released. And it's not until the late 80s with the beginning of the new queer cinema that gay movies are finally a thing and they're finally good and people can finally see them. It wasn't for a lack of trying. Um, In the 70s, it was very, very difficult for gay filmmakers to actually find reliable distribution for their films. The audiences were much smaller than they would want them to be. In general, a very risky proposition to um, make any sort of a gay-themed film. The filmmaker Arthur J. Bresson Jr., who made a documentary in 1977 called Gay USA, which he thought would be a big hit because it's, you know, right in the middle of Anita Bryant and her whole... Uh, thing. And it's a film that's mm-hmm. this document about of all these different pride parades happening on the same day in 1977. It's an incredible film, but he wound up owing so much money because he could not get it played anywhere. People thought it was too political. People thought gay people, it was demeaning mm-hmm. to gay people. Straight people didn't want to see it. Interesting. The one time it actually got booked in New York at a gay porn theater called the 55th Street Playhouse, the theater actually got vandalized because the marquee had the word gay on it. In Miami, they wanted it to be called, uh, no, in Canada, actually, they wanted it to be called Glorious USA. Oh, yeah. Because you cannot use the word gay in it. (laughs) So that's (laughs) Glorious USA. Gayer. I mean, that's kind of the resistance (laughs) that these filmmakers were up against to, um, you know, make the films they wanted to make and tell the stories they wanted to tell. Which is why for a lot of these filmmakers, the only way that they could make those types of films was to work in the porn industry. Uh, Those films were generally very, very low budget, um, but they were guaranteed to get distribution and almost certainly guaranteed to turn some sort of a profit. So a filmmaker could, you know, make a film about coming out or making a film about like gay romance or gay relationships or gay horror films or gay westerns or gay this or gay that. And as long as it had the requisite number of sex scenes, they could do whatever they wanted in the film. So speaking of Arthur J. Preston Jr., he's a filmmaker who worked very heavily in the porn industry. His films, Passing Strangers and Forbidden Letters, are now recognized as some of the greatest gay films of the 70s. But those are, you know, hardcore films that have, um, for decades, just kind of languished in obscurity and are finally now getting their due. Yeah. 
I just find all that so fascinating because like we're in the late 70s. This is a huge time of like pushing boundaries in film. The studio system is dead. Anyone can be a star. We're making these movies that are really provocative and gritty and, you know, real. And yet for some reason, there's just some boundaries people aren't willing to cross into to uh, add some diversity into films. It's, it's a really wild place to stop. I will say first off, I am not someone who cares about positive representation, but look, let's look at let's look at like representation <laughs> in Hollywood films from the 70s. You have Freebie and the Bean, where the character is an evil trans woman called nothing called transvestite. She doesn't even have a name. But the film ends with her getting <laughs> yeah. like shot yeah. 10 or 12 times in a bathroom and murdered. Um <laughs> You know, the the Hollywood's first step towards like a gay romance, uh, a different story, which is about a gay man falling in love with a lesbian woman and then the two of them becoming a boring straight couple. That's what we're (laughs) talking about, about, like the progressiveness of Hollywood in the 70s. I I also think that it's like what you say is so important that it's like you, you have to not care about perfect representation. And then it opens up a whole you know, world of uh, cool characters that you're like, hey, that character's pretty great. You know, like all, <laughs> all things considered, that is a step in the right direction. Yeah, even if they get shot a lot or even if they do something terrible. The unnamed transvestite is like the coolest character in that movie. So yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of there's a lot of that. Yeah, yes, in a movie with both freebie and the bee. <laughs> she's the she's the one person who isn't like an awful misogynist. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I feel the same way about partners, where it's like that's it's got some subtle storytelling in there somewhere. It's a humiliation kink ritual for Ryan O'Neill. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're right <laughs> His whole career is that, I think. All right, well, let's get into our first film today. So one of the biggest stars to come from Canada of any orientation in the late 70s played Carnegie Hall, Radio City Music Hall, and the Sydney Opera House, but almost always sang as other people. You can try to describe the act, but to really understand what made Craig Russell so incredibly special is to see them shapeshift from celebrity to celebrity impersonation, seamlessly, from the deep growl of Louis Armstrong to the scatting staccato of Ella Fitzgerald. My personal favorite is the Judy Garland impersonation, then water on the head, a slick back of the hair, and presto, Liza Minnelli. In addition to being a consummate performer, Russell was a complicated individual, and we see a small slice of that alongside jaw-dropping performances in the semi-fictional 1977's Outrageous, and later 1987's Too Outrageous. Liz, you're a fan of Russell. How did you come across the performance artist's work? I mean, I feel like I'm like everyone else. I first heard about Craig Russell through outrageous and I knew very little about the film except I knew the poster of it which I mean my favorite thing about the poster and the trailer for outrageous having seen the trailer later on the down the line is that the idea of a movie about a drag queen was so taboo in America that the poster is just the word outrageous in white (laughs) against the red background (laughs) and then the trailer is just the word outrageous like flying at the screen as like a narrator says it's a fun film come see outrageous <laughs> You'll have fun. We promise yeah. you won't be offended at all. <laughs> but then people came and were amazed. Uh, so we're not going to do that to our audience. Could you give the audience just a very brief summary about what this film is about? Sure. Outrageous is a. I, I have been describing it as being like one of those kind of like downer 70s new Hollywood movies, except it's about a drag sure. queen and his schizophrenic yeah. best friend. Um, <laughs> the film is based on a short story by the Canadian author Margaret Gibson um, about her experiences living with schizophrenia and her time living with Craig Russell as a roommate. Craig Russell plays a character named Robin Turner, who is a gay hairdresser who 
in his spare time does the wigs for all the local drag queens in Toronto and secretly aspires to do drag himself. One day, his best friend, Liza, who is a schizophrenic woman who'd been in an institution for eight or nine years, shows up at his doorstep and the two wind up living together. So as as Liza helps um, push Robin into doing drag and like making his dreams come true, uh, he tries to help her survive on the outside uh, with her illness that she clearly has not really fully conquered, that she's still struggling to figure out how to live with. And it just kind of goes from there. It's a very weird tonal film, but I think what audiences really tucked into that we're finding throughout of 1977 is 1997 has so many downer movies, so much disillusionment, so much like, oh my God, this is a slog to get through, even though it's beautifully constructed and made and making me feel they're just not fun. This is a movie that despite all the content and all the dealing with all these extremely difficult issues— is joyous and has an uplifting ending and ends with like a, a song and everybody is having a great time and you can laugh and you you want to be Robin's friend by the end of it. Mm-hmm. You want to be friends with both these people. They're just such cards, I guess, for lack of a better word. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I do think it's also just like great performances, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is like between uh, Craig Russell, who obviously like, yeah, what we've said is he is able to do what you would consider regular drag, but then also do these vocal impersonations that are unbelievable, like truly unbelievable compared to just about anything you've ever seen, even with real singing drag performers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Hollis McLaren as this schizophrenic woman, which like you could have told me that Hollis McLaren just got out of a institution. <laughs> she is so good at being manic. And uh, yeah, and I think so you're so locked in with these two characters and not even those two characters like honestly there's all these weird people on the side from the like one friend who just wants to be a like regular frumpy drag queen to uh, <laughs> the weird uh, you know rough trade uh, cab driver slash manager they eventually get it's yeah they're all like these fun uh characters that are surrounding it and you just kind of I think also because it's such an unusual plot, you're kind of along for the ride because you don't know what's going to happen next, really. I think one of the most remarkable things about the film, too, is that you expect it to be drag from the very beginning. It's nothing but drag with a little bit of story. But it takes, I think, until about the 45 minute mark until you actually see Craig Russell perform for the first time. Mm. And there's a lot more drag after that. But the buildup is what makes it, I think, so good. And I think there's a an expectation in a modern viewer that you are going into a drag film and you are going to see camp. And, like, no one's going to take anything too seriously and everything's going to be over the top. And this has that over-the-top sort of quality, but it really plays everything as straight as possible. And it's also bringing you into a point of view that even now I don't think we talk about very often. Like, uh, one of the things that fascinated me about it is that there really is a description of, like, the hierarchy of gay men attractiveness of, like, mm, yeah. we, we don't sleep with drag queens because they're slightly below us, but these guys are very attractive, but this happens here. So it's letting you into this insight of this whole society, and, like, it's almost an anthropological study that you're like, oh, I I feel like I'm this fly on the wall learning so much about this world. Yeah, I, I think also the, like, bummer of it all, I lo- there's like there's a, a healthy dose of self-hatred like throughout uh which i think is kind of interesting and again like yeah not perfect representation but that's why it's interesting and i think that it is good as well that like you know becoming a drag queen and becoming 
the most relative success becoming a like somewhat paid drag queen in New York who essentially gets a free apartment and probably not a lot of money is not necessarily a positive or a negative. Like, obviously, that's kind of what sets Liza off. And like, maybe it was detrimental overall. It's it's both of the films in this series, like deal with <laughs> yeah the you kind of don't know the, the, it's not a great success for anyone ever uh, uh you're just kind of muddling through which is very interesting i mean i think that's what makes the film so good though it it feels real fairly realistic throughout i mean the fact that you know it doesn't end with liza suddenly you know having a baby and then she's suddenly cured of her illness and then robin turner is like this big drag superstar who's like on the tonight show the fact that like the best they get is you know, he's got a one 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 night a week gig uptown and a <laughs> weekly gig downtown, and he's making yeah. a little money, <laughs> and she's like doing okay. Yeah, I think it's a really incredible ending for that film. The the last scene of that film, um, where it's the two of them in the dressing room, I think it's really really touching, and the fact that it ends with them, you know, again, no grand ending, just them dancing at the gay bar. Yeah. Is really remarkable. <laughs> yeah, I I also just think that uh, an interesting thing as well. Like as on top of all the queer stuff, I do think it's an, an incredibly progressive uh, mental illness movie because I think only now are we beginning to discuss you know unmedicated schizophrenia and like how you can deal with it. And this movie, you can tell it's like from Margaret Gibson's experience of like, yeah, all I need is somebody to tell me that the bone crusher, like I've locked the door so the bone crusher can't get in here, and that's like as good as me taking a bunch of medications that are going to destroy my brain mm -hmm. which is you know very fascinating and and still quite controversial in the modern day well let's get into craig russell himself for a bit because he is a fascinating figure uh as well as all of the figures that he embodied so among his impersonations he of course had your old standards like barbara streisand but he was doing uh carol channing which is one of my personal favorites i talked mm -hmm. about liza and judy and ella fitzgerald back to back with louis armstrong which is ridiculous to watch um it's it's just really impressive to watch him and the fact is is that people would go in droves to see him and we're not just talking about gay clubs here i mean he played carnegie hall um and you can't help but deny when you're watching the movie that you're looking at a unique talent. Liz, what do you think he was doing that really appealed to audiences at the time that really broke down barriers? I mean, I, I think it's, of course, the talent. I mean, the fact that he didn't just, you know, have like one person that he did, the fact that he would have the scrim out on the stage and he would like go behind it for a second and change his wig and change his outfit and then come out as a different character and then go back and come back and come out and, then, and go back and just literally just rattle through the whole book. And I mean, I, I think the fact that he had this movie that actually was something of a hit was the greatest promotional tool he could ever have. I, I think one thing that is interesting to think about with this film that I actually did not know about was that even though it is based on him and his experiences with Margaret Gibson, the filmmakers originally wanted to get Charles Pierce, another drag legend to play the role. Mm. Wow. When I, when I did screenings of the film last week, I described Charles Pierce as being like a traditional drag queen with a mouth like Bianca Del Rio. Ah. <laughs> um, so, like, Charles Pierce is another incredible talent, but I do not think the film would have worked with him in it. I don't think he could do that, like, quick-changing, those quick-changing drag routines, and especially, you know, all the live singing under all the different voices. Yeah. I mean, most drag artists don't sing themselves in modern days anyway, to find someone who can sing, let alone sing in all the different voices of all the different character impersonations. I mean, you kind of see a little bit of that in uh, Jinx Monsoon's performances on Drag Race. Like, she is, I think, probably the closest. I know she has a routine where she does Judy, Liza, and Lorna 
<laughs> All the same time. Wow. That's Craig Russell's act and obviously appeal, but uh, he was an interesting person outside of his performance. Uh, Cam, do you want to get into that a little bit? The interesting thing, I think, is that Craig Russell had a lot of familial support in some ways. He had a terrible father uh, who eventually <laughs> disappeared, but his mother and stepdad were like lightly supportive uh, of essentially drag and uh, performing like that, which is very interesting. And I guess apparently helped a lot. But yeah, I don't know, Becky, do you know more about like the, the rise of, of Craig Russell? Yeah, here's where it gets kind of wild. There's actually a fantastic documentary that I recommend uh, that's through CBC, of all places, that was still done while Craig Russell was alive. While they were filming Too Outrageous, he was kind of coming back on his, he was on his comeback trail. So interestingly enough, uh, he actually worked for Mae West. Uh, he went to Hollywood and he worked with her. Um, he, he called her up from Canada being like, I am the president of your Canadian fan club. And he invented a bunch of names and he came up with like invented minutes and she started calling him on the phone and they started having these phone conversations. And so he went down there to meet her and he ended up getting bitten by her monkey and was so oh, yeah. seriously injured and he didn't want to tell uh, his parents. And he told she told him, do not tell your parents that you're injured. So he ended up staying down there while he recovered and she kind of took care of him and they developed this friendship. And then he came back to Canada and then he realized this is not where I should be. I need to be where the people are. Um, and and ended up becoming her secretary for years in uh, Los Angeles and kind of met all these people. And the story varies about why he left, um, but apparently there was an extremely difficult, horrific incident that happened uh, under Mae West's watch, and he came home, at which point is when he sort of decided he wanted to start start doing his own thing and making making his own stuff. He, of course, was a hairdresser in Toronto and and all this. But then he moved in with uh, Margaret Gibson and two other iconoclasts. And the four of them together sort of became this, like, artistic cabal, lifting each other up and encouraging each other to um, create these, uh, these different shows and writings. And really, it was just kind of this perfect writer's salon-y storm of these creative people who were really able to kind of uplift each other. And then from there, this the screenplay got written and then outrageous happened and everything just sort of blew up for him. He became this international megastar. This movie was huge. I know that they said, uh, especially Berlin, which was like a bit more, you know, of an openly queer place, loved this movie. Obviously, it won awards uh, at the festival. It's very interesting that there was, I guess, the room for this uh, on stages and stuff. But I think it shows that there was <laughs> this aspect of society. I, but I mean, it's also very interesting in Canada, obviously, because Canada is like land of contrasts where there's a few things in here where they kind of imply, like, for instance, when they have to take the streetcar, that they would be arrested uh, if if they were not passing on the streetcar. That's like it was illegal to dress and drag in Canada, in Toronto at least forever. And yeah, Toronto has the weird thing of like, there were quite a lot of queer movies at the time. Like, it, it seems kind of cool. But then also, yeah, very punitive. Uh, we kind of had a thousand tiny stone walls instead of one <laughs> that uh, atomized everything. So by 77, there's a lot of queer marches and protests, but... Yeah, it's a very, very unusual time. So 
it's cool that this was kind of the representation out on the uh, international film scene. These were also two executive producers who were looking very much to push back on the traditional Canadian films. Canadian films by 77, like we're well into the tax shelter era, but we're very much sitting at like you're watching horror movies, a lot of exploitation movies, things like that. So getting something like this funded would have been completely different, even though it is taboo and boundary pushing. Um, but we should also note that the uh, executive producer of this are Bill Marshall and Hank Vanderkolk, whose uh, names may be familiar to people as they founded the Festival of Festivals, soon to become TIFF, which of course now is one of the biggest film festivals in the world. Bill uh, Marshall has an amazing quote. They wanted to produce this film, especially with uh, having it in mind that this was not a traditional Canadian film. Uh, Bill's quote is, things are changing. We no longer think of a hundred 150 ways to photograph a beaver is enough to make a feature film, which I absolutely love. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Uh, but this was such a huge splash at can. They took it to the marketplace. And I think Europe is exactly the place this film should have been shown as opposed to possibly marketing it around throughout an American distribution circuit. No, I think that, I think that totally makes sense. Um, I mean, I, I think the fact that the film actually did seem to get pretty robust European distribution is like a testament to that. I know it was released in Germany, the UK, France. Um, I'm sure lots of other places too. Uh, that's something you just generally did not see from American queer films from this era. Oh, interesting. What was the aftermath of this, Liz? You, uh, you mentioned that you um, you kind of know the the journey of this film and of Craig Russell. Yeah, Craig Russell, um, like you said, kind of blew up. Was playing like a like giant giant venues, selling out had this like very strange like mainstream crossover where all these straight people were suddenly like in love with him in the film and seeing it like multiple times. And then eventually I think it was like in Copenhagen or somewhere like that. He just had a breakdown um, before a show and came out on stage wearing his like male clothes, which is something that kind of gets worked into the sequel to outrages, which was made a decade later and is essentially a fictionalized version of what actually happened after the original outrages. And then the filmmaker, Richard Benner, he made a film called Happy Birthday, Gemini for, I think, Columbia or some other studio, which was a theater adaptation starring Rita Moreno that was a huge flop. So he didn't really yeah. have much going on until Too Outrageous when they kind of got the whole band back together and made a second movie. I'm glad you brought up Too Outrageous because it's a movie that was considered lost for a long time. The only way to watch it was to go to an archive that happened to have a scratchy VHS version of it and sit there and physically watch it. It has now found its way back into the light and uh, can be viewed by the general populace. I think it's really important for understanding kind of the legacy of Outrageous and Craig Russell as well. It's definitely tonally interesting because they're trying to recapture the magic of the first one of like, everything's going to be okay. As long as I stick to my guns and be myself, I'm going to be fine. But the the biggest issue was on set, everything wasn't fine. Like Craig Russell was dealing with very, very serious substance abuse and mental health issues, and he just couldn't quite do what he needed to do. So there's a, almost a very weird tone to the whole film. Did you guys find that as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, I think you can tell something's off, but it, it also sounds like it was very instrumental in like Craig Russell not essentially killing himself with alcohol. Like it, it, they did purposefully kind of set up this movie to be like, hey, why don't you come back to Canada? And it's that fascinating time where they're like he disappeared to Berlin and like 
basically nobody knows what happened. Mm -hmm. There's one guy they interview who kind of says what happened, but you're like, oh, yeah, I I, I don't know. It's interesting. And I mean, I like uh, what you said, Liz, as well about uh, Richard Benner, because he's like a very fascinating character because he's like a queer film professor who just kind of hits with outrageous. And I think so much of the first movie is so good because he was so obsessed with Verite. And I mean, you hear that there's a 120-something minute cut, which you're like, uh, show me the weird uh, Richard Benner's boyfriend <laughs> I did not cut. know that. Was uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, apparently his boyfriend was the original editor, and they took it. I will say that as much as you're like, you love the producers for producing it, some of those interviews, they are extremely homophobic. Uh, oh, yeah, no and question. And especially, I think, they did not respect... Uh, like the queer vision that Richard Benner had. But I think he shot in a way that included so much verite that it's like, it's so, I'm sure as like exciting as it is for you to watch this, to be like a queer person in Canada and see like these bars that no longer exist mm-hmm. and any snatch of life. And they're eating at the pizza pizza that's still there. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. you, you can go to that pizza pizza. I can go to the diner where the crazy lady yells at uh, Liza. Like <laughs> I can do it all. Yeah. So there's that kind of stuff still comes through. And uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. Cause I don't think a, a more traditional director and you even see he's much more polished by two outrageous and, and there's a little bit more of that kind of TV movie feel, which uh, infected so much of 80s Canadian mm-hmm. cinema. I mean, I think Two Outrageous is somewhat good in that, like, you love the characters so much, you just want to see more of them together. And, like, yeah. he and uh, Craig Russell and Hollis McLaren still have the spark. And I think the two of them are great together. Yeah. It's just that the the drag performances aren't as good. And then there's the issue yeah. of the blackface. <laughs> Which is funny, which oh, is funny, yeah. which is funny <laughs> because that, in the first one he does Pearl Bailey and he does Ella Fitzgerald. But all he had to do for those is like take his Ethel Merman wig and like put on a pair of glasses. He didn't have yeah. to like yeah. try to darken his skin to do Tina Turner or no. Bertha Kitt. No, and I think he does, doesn't he? He goes back to one of them not in blackface too. And it's like, well, what are you, like, are you, are you now like colorist where you're saying this woman's skin is lighter so I don't need to. Justin Trudeau yeah, was in college in 1988 uh, and he yeah, saw that like, movie. <laughs> and he decided, yeah, I, got I was going to say, he, he did it decades <laughs> later, so Craig Russell's fine. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely odd, but I also think, spoiler alert, uh, that it's very good that the movie is still has a downbeat mm-hmm. ending where it's just like the same ending flipped and now now your schizophrenic French is coming to you to be like hey hey buddy uh, which is so that is delightful to me that that's where where they chose to go and also that yeah they just still stuck to their guns of like I mean I love that he's tricked again by another hustler like mm-hmm. oh man you did not learn your lesson <laughs> about handsome boys who want to ruin but your do life any of us learn that lesson quite no, frankly no and especially <laughs> not saying. when you're like a drunk uh, <laughs> drunk old queen it happens to the best of us I don't know a, a strange set of movies but yeah it's it's, I, it's truly sad that like we lost both Russell and Richard Benner because I think both of them probably had a lot of interesting stuff to say. It is fortunate that there's so much archival footage of Craig Russell doing interviews, talking about his life. And um, there's a new book as well that actually discusses his marriage to his uh, fan slash makeup artist uh, who was a woman and their relationship. And there really does seem to be a 
a following for him that does still exist that people want to discuss his career and, and discuss um, him as an individual, which I, I think there's a lot to learn from his career and, and especially of that time period. It is interesting in that like the women who he idolized, all these stars came up, had a very similar kind of like Judy Garland is a very easy parallel to make to his career. This unbelievably talented human who got caught up with, you know, the wrong situations and substance abuse and left us too early, regardless of what they were capable of doing. Yeah. And I've heard a million <laughs> real dark, I mean, beyond the dark May West story you hear via Craig Russell, uh, there's some real, real dark stuff in her <laughs> later days, too, that seem uh, right, ripe for uh, too outrageous. I don't know. Well, I'd like to leave us on this film with one more uh, quick little anecdote of one of the reasons this movie was so big was apparently in order to promote it while they were at Cannes, uh, they created these fantastic windbreakers that said outrageous in bright colors across the back, and it was raining the entire time they were in France. And so you could see people in outrageous hoodies all up and down the closet so that they could avoid the rain. And I just love that idea. That makes me very happy. When we come back, we're going to a movie that's not quite as joyous. It's Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and that's coming up after the break. Cam, you know one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite? The money? <laughs> the money. The money is obviously number one because I have a very tiny dog who no. likes very fancy things. Sure. And, and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes onto the channel. Uh, you and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before. As well as, you know, the classic blockbuster favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something, Escape yeah. from New York, these big movies. But then uh, when you look at the landscape of, of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost, even the big boys. And like, forget about, uh, you know, discovering black directors of the 1970s, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out. And it's always very satisfying when we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people. Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with, and I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider, or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out hollywoodsuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. The late 70s was a time of revolution, including the sexual revolution, until the AIDS epidemic destroyed millions of lives starting in the early 80s and ushered in the era of safe sex. The singles bar was a place to explore your sexuality with no strings attached. Some people found liberation and personal growth in the experience. For others, that exploration turned dark and deadly. Looking for Mr. Goodbar was based on a novel written by Judith Rossner after hearing about a schoolteacher, Roseanne Quinn, who was stabbed to death in her own bed after picking someone up in a bar. The book was a huge success and became another paramount procurement for the big screen starring It Girl at the time, Diane Keaton, and a young actor who hadn't quite found stardom yet, Richard Gere. Cam, it is a tough movie to watch, to say the least, but do you believe this is one that's worth seeking out? Yeah, you know what? Actually, uh, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I think it's an incredibly artistic movie. I think that a lot of the criticisms against it, I don't agree with. 
Um, mm. It's very, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess uh, there's a distance from the book. I know that a lot of the criticism comes from lovers of the book who feel it wasn't handled perfectly. And I think obviously there's always stickiness with like the male gaze. But uh, it's such an amazing performance uh, from Diane Keaton. And so outside of what you expect, especially as a modern Diane Keaton guy. It's just a wild artistic movie. I don't know. It, it definitely makes me like, uh, you know, you hear that uh, Richard Brooks was one of the people that like Cahiers du Cinema was like uh, one of the true rebels. And <laughs> I think as an American, you're kind of like, who? <laughs> but uh, yeah, this movie, I think you, you did. You totally see it. Liz, how was this one for you? Had you seen this one before? Yeah, I'd seen Looking for Mr. Goodbar a few times. And I'd also seen the made for TV sequel, Track Down, Finding, it's, what is it called? Track Down, <laughs> Searching for the Good Bar Killer or something like that? I think so. That's yeah. the one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> George Siegel. <laughs> so weird. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I don't necessarily go out of my way to watch uh, when I'm looking for something <laughs> uplifting, but I no. do think it is a very, very powerful film. <laughs> I think it's an incredible, weird document of this very specific time and place. And I don't get some of the criticisms that I've seen about it over the years, especially from the great Vito Russo, author of The Soloid Closet, who saw it as being homophobic and, you know, villainizing gay men as being psychotic killers, which I don't. I don't get that, but I like it a lot. I I, I do too. I'm, I'm with you, Liz. I, I think it does a good job of kind of saying this is one specific individual with these mm-hmm. specific issues and you can't kind of apply this label yeah. across the, it's mm-hmm. not the palette it's playing with. And I think the fact that you're seeing so many complex characters with so many complex issues, that character at the end coming in doesn't feel tacked mm-hmm. on. He feels inevitable. Mm-hmm. And this is another film that I just feel like part of the reason it's so hard to watch is it feels like a slow march towards inevitability. Like it's a nightmare. And, you you know, when you can't run in nightmares, you just have to watch the thing happen. That's kind of sure. the sensation of this film. And it's not pleasant, but it is part of the human experience mm-hmm. and it's effective. Yeah. 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 I've, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff about like subjective because uh, it's an incredibly like subjective film you're, you're seeing within Diane Keaton's mind and it doesn't even tell you when it's fantasy and reality, but that they, you know, subjectivity can be used quite well in horror. And in this case, it's like suddenly you lose all subjectivity because suddenly you're really following the person who's murdering her. <laughs> and you're like that, that suddenly you feel like you have no control and you can't get back to what you liked to your comfort, which was seeing through her eyes. So it's like extra <laughs> traumatizing. <laughs> I think what's fascinating to me is how much this captured the zeitgeist in 1977. Like, um, there was two comedy routines of this, one on the Carol Burnett show uh, with Carol Burnett meeting Rock Hudson, who's trying to pick her up in a bar. Uh, He's like, my name is Mr. Goodbar. And she's like, oh, I've been looking for you. And then Gilda Radner did a thing on SNL with the the looking for Mr. Goodbar playset, where if she wins, she dies at the end. And she she ends up getting murdered and she ends up destroying the whole playset. So, like, it's wild that we were joking about this film, but it's seems like this was the only way people could really process this film because there's just it's just so brutal. I think there are elements in the film that could be considered camp. Uh, Richard Gere doing push-ups in a jock strap and dancing with a switchblade. Um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, things like that and things like Diane Keaton yelling the word scoliosis over and over again. Paralytic scoliosis, inflammatory, myopathic, and ocular scoliosis. <laughs> I just think a lot of comedy is very tasteless in general, especially, yeah, back then. Yeah. 
I, it was a hugely popular movie too. Like it's worth saying that. Like it's uh, it's kind of wild that such a dark experimental film like mm-hmm. did well. <laughs> you know how much of this film rides and dies on the Diane Keaton performance? The whole film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah agreed. Because so, of course, this is the same year she won the Oscar for Annie Hall, and there's a lot of people saying, "Well, she would have won it for this," but no one felt comfortable giving the nomination to this over Annie Hall. It was them being able to see, "Oh, she can do that too," which is what kind of pushed the envelope for for her to mm-hmm. win for Annie Hall, which makes entire sense. Did she ever do anything like this again? I don't think so. I mean, she had she had a weird like early eighties of like trying to do like little drummer girl. I, I think she kind of tried to get out of her comfort zone a few different ways, but I don't recall anything as erotic mm-hmm. at least, which is kind of wild. Like because this is like a full nudity, some some pretty uh, intense sex scenes, uh, yeah, which I don't think I saw much in the rest of her. And no, you know her now as a person too, where it's like. She she does not like to be perceived, you know. She doesn't like to go out of the house without long gloves. So it's uh, kind of fascinating to see her so like yeah mm-hmm. open here. And I think that this one, but I think that this is one that Diane Keaton was excited for. Like I don't think that this is a role she regrets. I, I think this is something that she took real relish in. And I know that the book is considered quite a feminist text. You know, it's very much about like no matter where you turn or what you desire, the patriarchy is going to kind of find its way mm-hmm. to crush you. I definitely can see her connecting with that. But yeah, I don't know why. I I didn't hear her ever describe why she decided to go so far out of her comfort zone in that sense. And I do think it's also very fascinating. Like, if it was a sexier actor, like an actor who I think was nude all the time or whatever, this movie would seem a lot sleazier. There's something to the kind of, uh, you know, chill image Diane Keaton has as like a Protestant uh, buttoned-up lady that works. Yeah, I mean, I would not say anything in this film as anywhere approaching erotic uh, in any sort of way. Um, but like she totally inhabits the character in such an incredible way, especially like that last scene where she is like taunting this guy who's like unable, <laughs> unable to get it up. Like she is so cool in this movie. Um, I don't know if you all want to talk about the gay stuff speaking of the end of the movie, but yeah, sure. Go yeah. for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think anything in this film is homophobic. I think it is a film if anything, about the horrors of sexual repression, her sexual repression and the sexual repression of this guy who's clearly gay, but is trying to pretend that he isn't. Yeah. And I I think, I think something that a lot of people maybe at the time didn't know about, or, um, or maybe I don't even know if it was even intentional when they were making this film, but this is a time when there were like multiple serial killers targeting gay men in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and New York and LA um, you know, that's where we get the movie Cruising. Cruising is based on a book from 1970-71, but then Friedkin was inspired to do it because of actual killings in the late 70s. And wasn't the one, the guy, one of the extras on The Exorcist was one of the gay serial killers, uh, which, right? Is that Yes, true? that's correct. He was working the x-ray machine in the when Regan goes in for her uh, her assessments. That's, the, that's him. Yeah, he killed, um, actually, one of the film critics at Variety. That was the person he murdered. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, because I know that that kind of <laughs> inspired him as well. But yeah, I also think that there's anybody who thinks this film is homophobic also has a like a, a misunderstanding that like homophobia is uh, you know patriarchal. It's like it's a misogynist. You know, like that's it, it suits it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if if there is homophobia on screen, it is still a comment on the patriarchy. Like it is still commenting on how. Uh, 
you know, she can't escape something that's inside someone else. Uh, that's uh, totally out of her control. I also find, I, I don't know, how, how do you both feel, uh, you know, as ladies about the idea that this is inevitable or moralistic? Because to me, I feel like she is doing uh, nothing wrong. She is, uh, she she is like, I mean, she does drugs. I guess that's illegal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like, I don't think that any of her behavior uh, is too wild, you know? I don't think so either. I mean, the worst that, the worst thing that happens to her up until the end is what she misses her class one day. Yeah. Cause she takes the wrong combination yeah. of cocaine and coilants. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the ending of the film isn't saying this is where she was heading from the beginning. It's more, she picked up the wrong person. The movie could have ended at any point before that. If she had picked up the wrong person, that's part of the, that's part of the danger. And that's part of the allure of these sorts of like yeah. one night stands. The only argument I would put in that is the fact that she, the way she treats people, that she doesn't quite learn from the first time when she goes after Richard Gere or, or even William Atherton. Mm. William Atherton's in this. He's great. Um, <laughs> that when you kind of tease people in that way, you got lucky the first two times with these people that you were able to kind of push out of your life. But I think just mm. the way she speaks to people is the part for me just goes, oh, you didn't quite learn your lesson about how to behave in these situations mm. if the situation isn't going in a direction that you are comfortable with or you or you find it funny in a way. Like there's just some things that you just don't mess with with any other individuals. And I think that's the only thing for me that you see that pattern going, oh, you keep doing this to people. Um, mm. And I think that's the only thing that makes me go. And I, I want to be very clear: it is not her fault she is killed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is, yeah. I want to be. I want to be clear: that's <laughs> you do not murder people. It doesn't matter what they no, say to you. Yes. Um, but I think there you you see her push buttons throughout the film, and then people react to that in an extremely negative way. That's the only thing that would make me go, "Oh, you had a pattern there too that was not." exactly healthy mm -hmm. sure and i mean she does describe stuff that we don't see of like you know various <laughs> seemingly rougher uh encounters uh that maybe would have been a little maybe an indicator to uh to but i mean also just don't be racist and have sex with lavar burton right? <laughs> like that's a, you got the real chemistry with the good guy lavar burton that's right um yeah i, I maybe he was 17 i couldn't really tell <laughs> what his age was uh yeah I, it's it's interesting to me i I also find that, like, I, I didn't know much about the movie. I didn't know much about the book. I knew the ending. Mm -hmm. I did not know that it was kind of inspired by a real event as well, which I, I feel like uh, it was kind of unfortunate because to me, watching the movie, I was like, oh, so, you know, because you're doing this subjective, like, daydream thing, you know, is this ending just another one of her daydreams, but it leaves us without seeing the reality? But then that's totally erased by knowing that, like, no, no, she's for sure and dead. The made for TV <laughs> you know, sequel. That's too bad. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Which we all would have sat down to uh, with a uh, hot cocoa, and yeah, I, it's it's a fascinating movie for sure. And I definitely think it's like, I, I, how do you guys feel about the filmmaking? Like, it's pretty wild to me. I think coming from um, someone who is so old school, I mean, uh, we're talking here about Richard Brooks, who, uh, I mean, he wrote Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for In Cold Blood. So you got a couple of, you know, dabbling in uh, gay closeted uh, stuff there. Mm. Um, but like he was like old school, old school Hollywood, you know, my best gal, things like that. And then you have this come out of him, which you're like, this was sitting in you all along. Like this is, you, just, you were just waiting for the right technology, the right social temperature, the right mood to be able to create something so vicious and dark, but also so 
experimental and fascinating. Like, there's a lot of life in this movie about darkness, which is really interesting. I mean, I think the filmmaking is brilliant in the way that kind of keeps you on your toes throughout the entire film. You never know what is real and what isn't. But I I mean, I I think the thing that I always think of when I think of this film is the soundtrack, which I think is incredible. Mm. And I I just love how, you know, even though it has this like hit studded soundtrack of all these different songs, you keep (laughs) hearing the same songs over and over and over again at the bars, (laughs) which feels so true to life because, you know, if it was the late seventies and you're going to a bar, you're probably going to hear the same Donna summer song night after night after night. Yep. And I mean, I think any movie that has a title sequence that has so many lights and songs in it that it can't get released on DVD (laughs) is a real one. I mean, I I think that's actually one of my favorite parts of the movie is the title sequence with all the photographs and just literally the the montage of songs that probably cost like thousands of thousands of dollars to license. Oh uh, yeah, I uh, I definitely also this is a weird movie where like she fully gets murdered and maybe this is my my um like male privilege talking but it made me want to go to a bar real bad <laughs> like you're like god I want to sit in the diviest dark dank uh wood paneled bar right now even if she got murdered. The gay bar she starts going to looks fun so it, it does. Yeah, it all looks really fun it's the weird part the dankest bar she goes to it seems like a vibe it's that that hot off of TGI Friday's uh, singles bar 70s vibe, you know, like this was new. This was like within the last decade, mm-hmm. the idea of single people going to a bar uh, began. But yeah, I, there's there's so much that I want to like dig into also just know like Richard Brooks is fascinating because he also kind of made his name writing a novel about a homophobic murder. So and also you get this impression that he is a very odd angry man to which i mean i'm automatically like <coughs> closeted gay man you know <laughs> like he he apparently uh beat up debbie reynolds once and what? ad had to pull him off of her uh mm. so it's like this guy had some problems and i wonder if because he wrote you know he adapted multiple things about like closeted gay men uh if that may have been the problem perhaps perhaps, perhaps. i mean just just to speculate mm-hmm. Just to speculate, which you love to do. You love to do with old Hollywood. They were all gay. They were all gay. You can't. Uh, no. Well, even Freddie Fields, who's one of the executive producers of this, who was kind of one of the biggest movers and shakers in Hollywood initially as an agent for CMA, and then he moved over to production at Paramount, which it seems like most people did. Paramount in the 70s is just a whole fascinating debacle under Robert Evans to begin with. But he also has a bunch of these like women in peril exploitation films. He's got one called called Lipstick from the year before, starring both Hemingway sisters and Anne Bancroft for some reason, that looks absolutely bonkers. Like, just watching the trailer alone. Again, do not go into the trailer if you have any trigger issues, but it is, it just looks very, very similar, but just absolutely wild. Is that the Rape Revenge film? It is. You bet it is. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I know it. Oh, yeah, just the trailer alone is like, what am I even looking at here? Um, But it, but I mean, again, you kind of have these patterns, these people who are like, this is the, these are the movies I kind of want to make. And and, uh, this is kind of the pinnacle of them. Like, it's it, it doesn't get any better meeting this performance with this script, with this level of experimental filmmaking, with the soundtrack, with everything. Like, this movie is as close to perfect as I think you get for something like this. Mm-hmm. Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, how can people find more of your work? Sure. Um, you can find me at elizabethpershell.com or on Instagram or on Twitter at schlockvalue. Doing stuff with my Ask Anybody project still. Also work at the American Genre Film Archive doing various things there. So 
Stay tuned. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Cam Maitland. Thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, and I'll uh, further plug more Liz stuff. Uh, I think Liz is a must-follow on uh, Letterboxd for if you love lesbian cinema, trans cinema, just about anything. Whenever I'm like, <laughs> whenever I look into a weird movie and there's a Liz review, it helps. Uh, and then I, I would also say uh, to the previous uh, talk we had, uh, the Vinegar Syndrome, Arthur Bresson Jr. Uh, double pack is very good, and Liz has a lot on there. Mm-hmm. So check those out. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you all. And you can join us again in two weeks where we're going to be joined once again by Justin DeClue looking at two Canadian survival films. It's Skip Tracer and Rituals. And that's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on 4 HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Elizabeth Purcell as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>